again, I'm Peter Bruce, and this is a new edition of my podcast from the edge, which I do for the Financial Mail every week. We're also available on both the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms, so everyone can listen. Welcome. Today's guest is special in that he didn't really want to come on to the podcast because we've been sort of on the opposite sides of an argument over President Sir Ramaphosa's efforts not only to stop and reverse the deindustrialization of South Africa since 1994, but also to use the coronavirus pandemic as a sort of watershed event from which to emerge transformed and reindustrialized. My guest is Doran Barnes, a soft-spoken, really nice guy who has, I think, Doran, been in the steel business all his life. I've seen a wonderful photograph of Doran and his late father, Rami, each standing on the other side of a coil of wire looking at each other. It's a poignant picture to me because I'm a romantic about industry and perhaps especially about steel, which I used to write about in the UK many years ago. Doran, that photograph and the article with it were published in Business Day in 2007 when I was still the editor. And it told the story of your struggle against ArcelorMittal, previously ISCO, for steel rod at a fair price, which was the only primary steel producer in the country it was able to dictate, and they wanted to shut you down. The headline called it a David and Goliath standoff. What do you remember about that time? Uh, hi, Peter. Thanks very much. Uh, yes, uh, 2007 was quite a long time ago. Uh, and thanks, that was a lovely picture of myself and my father. In, uh, in 2003, actually, that how the barcode started, we were a small wire manufacturer at the time, and uh, uh, we were trying to grow our business. And Mattel, or AMSA at the time, was trying to, in our view, and you know, there's obviously two sides to every story. In our view, AMSA or Mattel was trying to consolidate the wire industry and get rid of a few, get rid of uh, the smaller players in the industry and consolidate them into one bigger player. At that stage, uh, our business, Barnes Fencing, uh, was not chosen to be part of that uh, greater cartel, let me say, I'll use that word, uh, at the time. And uh, for various reasons, AMSA put a lot of pressure on us uh, in terms of pricing and higher prices than what they were charging our competitors for uh, wire rod. And it led us to uh, taking AMSA to the Competitions Commission. At the time, at the time you said there was only one uh, wire rod supplier. There was actually three, AMSA, Score Metals and Cape Gate. And for various reasons, we couldn't get product from uh, a Score and Cape Gate at the time. And uh, we were we were under severe pressure, and we managed to uh, uh, to deal with that and eventually get supply from Score and Cape Gate, and uh, uh, and then uh, eventually uh, Cape Gate actually became our major supplier at the time. Just to remind our listeners, so wire is an extruded product from the rod, right? So you you would feed the rod into a mill of some sort and it would come out a whole lot thinner and a lot longer. Yes, yeah, so wire rod is a, a, a steel raw material. It's, it's made from a steel mill. 
uh, and it goes through a wire drawing machine. So that extrudes it to the size of wire that you want. So your wire rod comes from a 5.5 millimeter up to a 13 or 14, even thicker than that. But for the wire industry, generally we buy 5.5 millimeter and draw that down to the size that we need. We process that through a galvanizing plant and we get galvanized wire that uh, in barns fencing we use for fencing products. Right. And from barns fencing 10 years ago, or more than 10 years ago now, you've, you've now become, and it goes through various iterations, you've become score metals. Um, or you've taken the greater part of score yourself. It's very difficult on the internet to find to, to track the actual, and I hope you'll help, help us with an explanation. What, what exactly has happened? Anglo-Americans sold score metals, or 74% of score metals, to the IDC in about 2009, 2010, um, uh, for quite a lot of money, about 3.4 billion rand. Um, and it's since gone through all sorts of um, uh, iterations. And where is it now? What, do you, what have you, what have you done? Because this, you called me the other day to say that you you now own Score, and it's not really clear from the internet or my internet searches how that happened. Uh, yes, uh, Peter, that's that's uh, um, correct. Uh, we do uh, we have a controlling interest in Score, um, and Score was sold from uh, the ID was sold from Anglo to the RDC, and uh, in. Uh, 2017, 2018, uh, we purchased the controlling interest in SCORE from the IDC. Um, and uh, today we operate the business, SCORE Metals. It was broken up. It wasn't the entire SCORE Metals that we bought. So there were various divisions. The cast products division was sold out, out of SCORE and the grinding media division was sold out of SCORE. And we bought uh, uh, a SCORE Metals what was left of score after that transaction. So that was rolled products and wire rod, basically? Yeah, yes, that's the, the rolled products. Uh, yeah. uh, the uh, Actually, the steel-making facility uh, yeah. and the uh, wire businesses, which is Haggy, the Haggy businesses in McKinnon Chain. Right. And it sort of changes it changes your view of the world, doesn't it, now? Because you're now a steel-maker rather than on the other side of it. and and. You, you, you know what? What is so interesting? Watching not not your part, but but um, the the state, particularly the Department of Trade and Industry, which is now Trade Industry and Competition, because back in the day, twenty nine, two thousand nine, two thousand and ten, it would have nothing to do with ArcelorMittal. Um, it was at war with ArcelorMittal, and I clearly remember. Um, in the industrial policy action plans that are used to produce, I'm sure you read them. Um, uh, then Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis used to forbid ESCOM from using uh, AMSA steel in its transmission masts. Um, uh, and then there was a great peacemaking with, uh, that came with a visit by, from Lakshmi Mittal, who owns Outlaw, um, who had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Jacob Zuma in the union building. And everything changed. Um, Arcelor Mittal, Mittal was back uh, in favor, and um, uh, and the Department of Trade and Industry couldn't do enough for it. 
And so we've got into a situation now where um, uh, there are stiff duties uh, imposed on uh, the imports of products which compete with ArcelorMittal. And further down the line, and particularly in your instance, the Department of Trade and Industry is also imposed really quite stiff regulations on the scrap metal business because it, in order to provide you and other users of scrap with, um, with good stock. And I wonder to what extent, you, just what you, th what you think of the sort of change in point of view um, between the government and steel and perhaps between yourself um, and the supply of steel because you, you, all you knew when you were making only wire um, was what the price of your stock was. You weren't particularly, I know you said in the article that um, AMSA was particularly good steel to use, but presumably you were happy to use the SCORE product that you got. Um, you weren't really too worried about where SCORE got their scrap from at the time, or were you? Well, uh, yeah, there's a number of questions to answer. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, so let me let me start off with your the first the first issue relating to the old DTRC with Rob Davies and and Mattel or AMSA at the time, and and where that went. And obviously, again, there's definitely two sides to the story that went on there um, between government and AMSA and government's view of AMSA and government's intention always was to create a developmental price of steel in South Africa. Give the steel, the downstream, uh, the downstream users of steel an advantage in the local market. That's where, that was the original intention from my understanding. And, and uh, uh, that is when AMSA was created in South Africa, where ISCO was sold to uh, Mittal as such. And from, from, from my understandings, government and Mattel had arguments about the, uh, the, the developmental price of steel. And uh, uh, the result of that was an argument about, or let's say, a, uh, uh, a difficulty in understanding between what a developmental price of steel was and what AMSA was charging South African steel producers, at, uh, steel users at the time. And I think there was a lot of emotion between uh, government and the individuals involved and uh, the steel maker in South Africa, AMSA. And, and unfortunately, that has been devastating uh, when, uh, when one looks at what has happened to the actual steel industry and particularly what's happened to AMSA from, them until, from then until now. So through these arguments and, and all the issues that happened, a lot has changed. Uh, the Kumba iron ore, mites were, iron ore rights were lost. Um, duties were taken away at one stage. Duties were put, put back. Um, and uh, the demand for steel has come down in South Africa. And then economic growth has changed. And certainly for the demand, we're having a result in a reduced demand for steel has come down. And the result of all of this let me say disarray between uh, government and uh, the steelmaker AMSA particularly resulted in uh, uh, um, a lack of investment and uh, 
a, a very big deterioration in that businesses overall financial position and operating position. And this is not a, uh, a personal issue between uh, any people, uh, between anyone. This is very much a South African, a South African issue. And it's, it's a big problem for South Africa not to have a, a major steelmaker as much as we compete with AMSA. Uh, but for a downstream, for the downstream businesses, um, we need to have, and I, I do believe we need to have a, a, a steel maker in South Africa making steel uh, from iron ore. And I think it would be a loss for the country to lose that uh, uh, AMSA in its current form, or to not AMSA specifically, but to lose the industrialized uh, facilities of, of AMSA, the steel making facilities, let me say. And I think. What, what's been happening now is government, uh, in my view, I don't believe they, there's a change that they particularly want to support AMSA or like AMSA. It's a, it's a particular uh, arrangement with AMSA. I think government, and I say DTRC, is looking at the broader steel industry and is trying to make the best decision for the broader steel industry and looking at what's the best long-term solution for South Africa steel. And if that means assisting AMSA, uh, that's what they, that's what they're doing. But it's not in a, in my view, and I'm very much, uh, I'm not a, a pro AMSA person at all. And we often fight with AMSA. But what I see from DTRC and what they're doing is they're looking at the broader picture. They're looking at the country as a whole and and I must say, the interactions that we've had with DTRC has been very positive. They don't always agree with what, what I believe, I must say that. But one thing that what they do do is they listen, they hear, they give you an opportunity to state your case and a lot of opportunity to state your case. There's a lot of interaction that takes place. Um, uh, Minister Patel himself is... Uh, very learned in terms of the dynamics of the steel industry. And I've had a number of engagements with uh, Minister Patel, and he's fully aware of the dynamics of what's happening here. And he's making, and his department is making decisions for what is best for the entire steel industry. Sometimes uh, when you make those calls, you can't make everyone happy. There's going to be problems and some people are not going to be happy or some businesses are not going to be happy. Some businesses are going to be happy, but somebody needs to make these tough decisions. And the only thing we can ask, and I must say the only thing we can ask of government is to apply their minds and make uh, decisions uh, with all the knowledge that they have in front of them. So, I believe they are applying their minds. I must tell you, they are applying their minds to the steel industry. And as an overall picture, they are making decisions based certainly on what they believe is best for the steel industry. Doran, can I interrupt you there just for a moment? So I understand that they would be making um, decisions with, with uh, steel making in mind. So we do, you know, we, let's agree that we need a steel and we need a, 
primary steel maker, somebody who makes steel out of iron ore and, and coking coal and all of those sorts of things. Can it possibly be that you can make a decision for that, for that, for that function? Let, let's leave the company out of it. And at the same time, make decisions for people who are fabricating and might be making quite intricate things like fasteners or or uh, roof trusses or whatever the hell they might they, they might be in in to Helen gone you know in some in Harry Smith or wherever I mean uh, and the, the I only ask because you know the the I, I sometimes think that the attachment to to making steel and obviously we, you know it makes sense because we've got the coking coal we've got the iron ore is 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 romantic you know it it's simply to the, the 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 duties the import duties which are there to protect AMSA and the primary steel maker not the fabricator in any way the fabricator now has to buy at a at a higher price so has to cut his or her costs has to cut his or her jobs in order to buy more expensive steel because AMSA can't make the steel at a competitive price. Who's getting looked after? I mean, AMSA employs 2,000 people. Downstream, you're talking about hundreds of thousand people. Peter, so let, let, me, let me answer that. Uh, there's a number of questions there. So, but uh, you know, if we can keep it to one, one point at a time, I'd appreciate okay. that because I'm, I'm, I'm leaving a few things out. I know, you, but you're doing very well. So, first of all, you talk about the uh, 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 so let me let me just add another thing in when we talk about government uh, and their involvement here and their view uh, for the greater South Africa. So government makes decisions, and yes, protects in this case AMSA and also score metals. We've got some duties on some of our products, but government also I must say expects business to behave appropriately. So I, I think these current shortages that we have that you're talking about is that actually the one that's been let down here is government. They have, yes, they protected AMSA and they put in a lot of things uh, to assist AMSA and AMSA didn't, didn't produce the goods. The idea was good to protect AMSA in my view. And what happened is after COVID and coming out of uh, uh, COVID, certain decisions were made and AMSA could not get their production up to the uh, required production quick enough. Now, this is not just an AMSA problem in South Africa, by the way. Many steelmakers in the world uh, also couldn't get production up to where they're supposed to be. And the result is there's an international steel shortage at the moment. But this isn't a South African steel shortage. We are not the only company country in the world that's got a steel shortage at the moment. Uh, you, you know, just in today, a uh, 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 steel business brief, there is no hot roll coil available on the spot market in America. In, in America, never mind, we're not talking South Africa. In America, there's no spot. You cannot go to the steel mill and buy now steel. You can't place an order. That's what the article said today. There's a big shortage in America. Your next order you're going to get in America is for July delivery, June or July delivery. So this was, I, I believe, uh, your government's decisions down here were sound in this regard uh, uh, for general duties. 
um, there's a safeguard duty which 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 we we are moaning about or complaining about an extra eight percent on hot rolls specifically, and we've argued with that and we are very much opposed to that. We think a ten percent duty is okay. The eight percent on hot rolled hot rolled coil is is something we think is is it should not be in place. But as I say, there's two sides to every story, so I disagree with that. But that's the way it is. So. Uh, in terms of this shortage of steel, to a certain to a certain degree, government has been let down because the the producer didn't produce the goods. They protected them, they gave them, and they didn't produce the goods. It's not a government problem. That that's a local problem. I, I'm going I'm going to carry on to your next question around the fastener and around the uh, roof truss person that you, you you talk about that there's a shortage of steel. And that, and, and and I disagree with the statement that you've made. So the roof trust person and the price he pays for steel, that price is we we are in a in a in a um, a relatively efficient kind of a market. So in our business, uh, uh, we took a decision and we imported large quantities of steel, and we've been importing large quantities of particularly flat products since COVID, since June. And uh, there's a price, there's a duty, and there's a safeguard duty. And we pay that price, duty, and safeguard duty. And we land the material here, and we've utilized it, and we've kept our factories busy because we took the opportunity to import steel and pay the duty. And the price of the steel that we land down here is competitive with the local pricing. And that's just because of the cycle. The prices are moving up. So as the price moves up and you buy, we buy three months ago, we got the three months ago price when it lands here now. So it's very competitive against AMSA's price. Let me say that. Against AMSA's price because AMSA's price has been moving up. So I've got three months ago pricing or four months ago pricing. Where did you import from? A number of countries, so I, I don't want to go into that details, but various companies, countries, wherever we could get the best price from and availability. Okay, so remember, all of these people that you're talking about all had the opportunity to import and pay the duties. Now, why didn't they import and pay the duties? Why do you think they didn't import and pay the duties? He could have the guy that has got his had to pay the price and pay the duties. He's laying off people because he doesn't have um, he doesn't have steel. Why is that? Well, presumably he's not paying the import duties because he can't afford them. Eighteen percent, eighteen percent, an eighteen percent duty on on steel that you order. Hot roll coil. Hot roll coil is a is, is practically a commodity. It's it's the most Apart from slab, it's the most and rod presumably it's the most easy thing to make in the world. Well, and you didn't have any problem getting. You didn't have any problem finding it. No, 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 no. We had problems finding it, and we had issues. It's difficult to get hold of. You can't today. The the delivery from import material is landing here uh, around for July. July usage. So if you make a deal now, you land it here to use in July and August. Now. And and that's that's the reason. It, it, just this 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 issue of importing material in the eighteen percent duty. I just want to correct you again. 
we import, we pay the duties, but we don't, the, the, the cost of the import of steel doesn't land with me. We buy it and we sell it. The cost of the imported steel lands with the end user of the yes. steel, yes. not with me, the manufacturer. Well, okay. you have to sell it, obviously. Yeah. Well, we have to sell it. But all of the people that are complaining are complaining they can sell the steel. They can sell it at the right price, okay, but they can't get the steel. The price is not the issue at the moment with regards. The issue is availability. So the guy who's got the steel at the moment, unfortunately, in a market where there's a shortage, is charging higher prices, much higher prices for the steel. So the guys that should be complaining about the high price of steel is the end user, not the manufacturer currently. And we're having the manufacturers complaining because we can't get steel and we all want to import steel and we don't want to pay the duty. So there's a little bit of a disconnect out there. The guys are complaining because they can't get steel because it's easy. You order from AMSA, which is in Thunderbale Park, and he delivers here in six weeks. When you've got to order from uh, uh, import steel, when you've got to import steel, you've got to order the steel four months, three months to four months in advance, and it's complicated and it's difficult to do. So if we didn't have a local producer, everyone would have to import, and, and, and that would make a lot more difficulties for the smaller players and currently than, than what currently is available to them and their options of supply locally. So the, the, at the moment, I, I don't believe it's a pricing issue. The duties are not the issue. The issue is simply that for various reasons, uh, uh, um, and it's a worldwide phenomenon, that there is a shortage of steel because these steel plants, especially the blast furnace or, or uh, uh, virgin steel plants, take a long time to start up. So that's the issue we have currently with that. The, the you know, uh, there are a lot of people who um, one reads who, who who do complain about the price, and we talk about, and probably this is outside of your outside of your sphere of interest, but Niasa, uh, Gerard Papenfuss, uh, he's got a lot of members who are complaining not about, it is, you know, sure there's a steel shortage, but they're also complaining about the duties and, and the prices. What I worry about is that protecting ArcelorMittal the way we are, you're applying roughly the same sort of logic to giving 10 billion rand to SAA uh, because it's a, it's, it's it, it's a um, strategic. We have to have a national airline. We have to have a primary steel producer. This is this is 1960s thinking. This is what British Labour Party did to British industry until Maggie Thatcher came around and took it apart. You know that we now make as much primary steel as Britain does. That's what she did to British steel. About seven million tons a year. They're about a million tons a year more than us, according to World Steel Organization numbers. What do the Brits do? They import. Of course, they import. They don't have to worry about. They don't have to worry about whether their whether their steel producers blast furnaces are obsolete or not. Whether they ever, you know, there's one big plant left. I think operating in the UK. I think it's called Redcar. Um, I think it's owned by Tata Steel, the Indians. But the rest of it, British steel doesn't exist. It is now grassy knolls 
uh, dotted around Wales and 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 the north of England, um, and and they've been able to survive without steel because they simply regarded it as a commodity. You can get it anywhere. There's millions of tons of it on the high seas at any one time. Quote unquote. As I remember somebody once saying, "Steel slab, steel bar." Um, is is easy to get. There may be a temporary shortage now because of COVID, but nobody asked ArcelorMittal, by the way, to shut down all of its blast furnaces during COVID. You know, and it's been very slow in getting them back up again. And so you've yeah. got you're protecting you're protecting protecting a very badly behaved business out there. I don't know how you you know, and and obviously the threat, the threat on ArcelorMittal is if you if you mess with us, we're shut down. So, so look, I, I uh, Peter. First of all, I'm not. Uh, I, I, I find it difficult to defend ArcelorMittal here. I'm defending the steel no, industry. We're going to come to scrap in a minute. Yeah, we can come to scrap. So, I'm, I'm very much a, a proponent of defending the steel industry. Yeah. Mittal, AMSA, the 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 operations is. Uh, I, I can't talk for them too much. But the concept of protecting the South African steel industry is something. I am uh, uh, very much in agreement with. When you just talk about SAA and South African Steel, uh, those two concepts, now they're they're completely different. Uh, uh, The steel industry in South Africa uh, that is uh, upstream and downstream employs hundreds of thousands of people, a few hundred thousand people. AMSA, you say, employs 2,000. I think that number is wrong. I think they employ about 8,000 directly. but many indirectly. I know at school, uh, 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 you know, we 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 uh, um, our, probably our ratio between direct and indirect is four to one. Uh, so one employee against four indirect employees that you have. So it's a big number uh, 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 that you are creating jobs for just with AMSA and all the services and score all the services that are provided to school in order to make this deal. A lot of that is outsourced today for various reasons. So SAA and steel is not, uh, uh, they, they're two, two completely different things. One is employing, I don't know, SAA, a few thousand people. I don't know the number. Yeah. But the steel industry in South Africa is a few hundred thousand people. British steel, and if you look at Britain and you look at South Africa, we're two different countries. British people, they're very good at insurance and finance and, you know, their, their financial district down there is a big employer of people in that in that country. They've got a well-educated uh, um, uh, population. It's a totally different type of environment to South Africa. And when we start breaking this uh, idea of a upstream steel industry and you take that away, and we are very much, our group is very much involved in upstream and downstream. So we want to, we are, in fact, I would say we are one of the largest downstream uh, users of steel in Southern Africa, uh, flat product and long product. So we're very much on the downstream side. And, I, you know, take away the upstream side of our business. And if you're continuously importing product, which we can't do, by the way, uh, so you would import when there's an opportunity to import upstream products. But if you continually have to import upstream products, you'll end up importing downstream products as well. And if we import the downstream products, we might as well import finished products altogether and not manufacture. 
the steel product in South Africa altogether. And that's what I think DTRC is afraid of. They want to see the entire supply chain. And if we start uh, importing on the top end of the supply chain, you talked about fasteners. So you import the steel for fastener, we might as well import the fasteners. So we have one of the largest fastener nail manufacturing businesses. We have the largest nail manufacturing business in South Africa. A very difficult business. And yes, we've competed a lot with imports coming in. And from time to time, we've considered closing that business. And we should import products. But, but we haven't. And uh, there's protection in the upstream and there's protection in the downstream. And we're creating a lot of value add in South Africa for that. And I, and I think governments, uh, uh, the DTRC specifically, their intention to keep that value add from a steel all the way to the nail products uh, is very good. It's a very good thing. We employ in the nail business close to 200 people down there, good jobs in that business, just in the nail manufacturing business. So that whole blockchain is very important to South Africa and to job creation in South Africa. And um, uh, uh, in terms of uh, NIASA, is an organization that is very, very vocal in terms of what they, uh, uh, what they believe. And yes, they are complaining significantly about the shortage of, uh, of steel and these duties. And there is the shortage of steel and their members are without product, which is very bad. Uh, but I don't think, again, I say to you, it's not a duty problem, that anyone could import. So anyone could have imported in October or November last year and brought product in here, duty or no duty, because it's irrelevant that you paid the duty. It's what price you could sell the product for today. So you, there was the position you could have taken last year, brought it in, produced and sold the product here. But Peter, understand now that uh, uh, steel prices are the highest in the world at the moment. So if you import now product, forget duty, you land it here in four months' time, steel prices can come off. So you're scared to import. So you'd rather not take the chance to import. And that's why you need a local manufacturer, because you can't always afford to import product. Well, steel prices may be high, but I mean, we benefit, we can benefit from that as a country by exporting more of the product that we have, more of the commodity that we have, iron ore and cooking coal, to allow other people to make it. But let's leave that argument aside for the moment. I, I don't for a moment agree with you, by the way, that, you know, if you're going to not make steel, primary steel, that you might as well stop fabricating as well. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. It's like saying, well, if you can't have South African airways, you might as well stop tourism. Um, it, you know, downstream can look after itself. I want to ask you about scrap metal because it's your primary feedstock. And I remember when we first spoke last year, you complained to me about how scrap metal dealers, and we all know scrap metal dealers have got probably the worst, even worse reputations even than journalists and lawyers. Um, but how they, you know, they basically were, you know, trying to export all the good stuff they hid it away in containers, and then when you found it and wanted it, um, they made you pay to bring it back uh, from Durban up to up to the reef. But there's a very intricate, even then there was a very intricate pricing system to try and make sure that you were looked after as well as AMSA in terms of your feedstock. The, the pricing parity, I can't remember what it's called now, my brain is left me, but you'll help, you'll help me. Now I discover Obviously, you've spoken to the hardworking folk at the DTRC. 
you have basically the power to to um, uh, to decide what scrap you will not have. The scrap dealer has to send it back to you at his cost. Not allowed to keep it in a container any longer. It's pretty difficult to export any scrap at all. You must be in seventh heaven. I mean, business must be wonderful. So yes, yes, yeah. So business uh, uh, scrap exports have been uh, uh, reduced significantly uh, currently, and uh, yeah, the scrap dealers are so scrap dealers are absolute champions. They will take advantage of any opportunity, and they're very hardworking guys. I must tell you, and they it's a tough business, the scrap industry. Make no mistake, and. Uh, um, very very competitive in that business and yeah the 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 dtrc has has done a lot of work to prevent the export of scrap out of south africa and uh, at the moment uh, for the last few months as a whole scrap has been prevented from being exported so they have put in a price preference system uh, with with rules uh, that give the concept is that a, uh, a scrap exporter will have to offer steel, the, the scrap steel, uh, to the local mills before they can get an export permit to export scrap. And there are various rules around that, and scrap dealers will do everything they can to mingle and play with these rules in order to be able to export the stuff that they make the best money on. And the local mills uh, will try and prevent export of scrap so that we can keep scrap local and use it and support and uh, um, and feed our businesses with that. So in that regard, we've been successful on uh, reducing significantly the amount of scrap that is being exported. And the result of that is I've been involved in school for three years. Um, this is the first time in three years that we, are, we have more than 10 days of scrap in stock that we have. We still don't have enough scrap. We're still looking to buy more scrap. It's a very interesting industry that scrap and the way scrap is traded internationally and bought locally, both, both of that. But, um, but uh, that, that, I believe, has been a very good thing. It's promoting local uh, beneficiation of scrap. And there have been, over the years, a number of new small steel mills have been developed that are utilizing the scrap and competing, actually, with AMSA. So we've been talking about uh, um, flat products predominantly, which is hot rolled coil, where there's a safeguard duty. But long products is a different uh, business. That's AMSA Newcastle's facility. And what DTIC, together with the IDC, have funded a number of small businesses that have developed over the last few years and compete heavily now with, uh, with AMSA. And the result of that is been that the long product pricing has been priced far below import parity pricing. That's up until this current shortage that there is. So up until the beginning of COVID, I'd say, we were sitting at pricing for long products, the range of long products, uh, at at uh, at sometimes two thousand rand below import parity pricing, and that was as a result of this work that the DTRC has been doing. Things have changed now because of shortages that are there, but certainly now, if the scrap was being exported, it would have created 
a much larger shortage of steel in South Africa of long products. Is there not a danger um, of uh, Doran of of scrap metal dealing or the scrap metal industry as we know it simply disintegrating because it's been so heavily interfered with now? It's not. I mean, there was an actual full-out ban for most of last year on the export of any scrap. Um, uh, and when you do that to, you know, if somebody said to you, you have to stop making steel for three months or six months, you'd say, well, all right, well, I'll stop making steel forever. So if they, if, isn't the danger that once you start messing with the ecosystem, that you do, you do so much damage that it doesn't come back, where you might find yourself seriously sitting around with your exco, wondering or not whether to start your own scrap business, because you can't get any. Scrap pre-COVID levels, the, the, the scrap price using round numbers was around 3,000 rand a ton before COVID. Now scrap, you, you remember you collect it from various places. It's collected from industry, but uh, uh, guys go around collecting various types of scrap. Uh, and that scrap's got to find its way to the steel box. So the argument pre-COVID was, if the scrap pricing was below around three to three and a half thousand rand a ton, the scrap wouldn't come to the reef from, let's say, Petersburg and for, or Messina, further places up north. The cost of transport wasn't enough to justify collecting scrap from those places, processing it, transporting it to the steel mill, so it never came. They call it the inflection point, the inflection price of scrap. Yeah. So you've got to pay a certain price for scrap in order to get it to flow. And that price was around three, argue between three and three and a half thousand rand a ton. Today, the price is over 4,000 rand a ton. So forget what's going on internationally. The price of scrap is over 4,000 rand a ton, much higher than it was a year ago. So scrap is flowing and all the little pieces of scrap from all over the country are now being moved because it's worth it for the guy, the farmer on his farm, he now gets, let's say up in the north there, used to get two rand a kilo for it, now he gets three rand a kilo because the price here is around four rand a kilo. Obviously, they're different types of scrap. So the, the, the economics of it is working at the moment and scrap is flowing. The problem, the problem with the whole thing is, and where the scrap dealers are upset, is that they have an opportunity to export that scrap at a much higher price. And they would prefer, and, and, you know, if they give the opportunity to do that, that's what they would do because that's business. And I agree with them. If you can export scrap at 5,000 rand a ton, why sell it for 4,000 rand a ton? Okay. And of course, you're going to do everything you can to sell it at 5,000 rand a ton. And you're buying it today equivalent to a 4,000 rand a ton because that's the price. So the argument today is, the argument very much today is a once-off argument. The scrap dealer wants the ability to export scrap at five, let's say. He's buying it at four, and, and the steel mills are buying it at four, for just using round figures. But he knows if he gets it into a cotton, he sells it for five. So he's very excited to do that. If you were allowed to export scrap, he wouldn't buy it for four. He would have to buy it for five. Because the steel mills will have to pay five, he would buy it for five, and he would export it for five. The market is very efficient. Scrap is the most efficient market in the country. 
you change the price by 50 rand a ton and it changes the flow of scrap. So it's a very much one or once off uh, game that they're looking for because they've collected scrap at the moment and they've paid the equivalent of four. And they haven't sold it to the steel mills and they've paid for because of the government's prevented exporting of scrap. So now they can, they're trying to argue to export it for five and they must make this big gain on it. And of course they must argue for that because that's what the guy, that's what a scrap dealer does. He wants to make money. He's in business. He must do that. And I pat him on the back and he must fight hard to do that. I agree with him. But I'm on the other side of that and I'm fighting to keep our scrap price as low as possible and do what makes money for me. And and, and not only what makes money for me, sorry, it allows us to produce the steel locally uh, when there's a shortage going. Lauren, thank you ever so much for um, joining me and for your wisdom and your insight and your passion. Um, I'm sure your dad would be very proud of you uh, at running a business as big as SCORE. I take my hat off to you. It's a tough game and I'm sorry to be causing um, uh, a little bit of trouble about it at the moment, but I see things slightly differently. But it's, what a pleasure talking to you and it's really been uh, an education. So thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, I just don't think industrial policy should be happening in the dark, and so I'm trying to shine a little bit of light on it. I'll be back next week with a new guest and a new conversation. These podcasts help uninformed me get a little up to speed, uh, and I hope they help you too. Bye for now, and thanks for joining. <laughs>